We know I've been looking forward to this day for a few months now. Uh, I'm really excited about tonight and for what you're about to experience. Uh, believe it or not, and I know this is, I, I'm actually not saying this uh, tongue in cheek, believe it or not, pastors really don't always have all the answers when it comes to the Bible. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've all studied, we put the work in, the time in, we, we all know the word, but we all have these kind of different gifts, and there's plenty of times where uh, Garrick and I get stuck and, in terms of an issue of doctrine or, or an issue in the text or, or how should something be preached. And oftentimes in those moments, we reach out to other people for help that they could come alongside and kind of help us shape our thoughts on it and move through the text in a way that we can come up with answers or know how to communicate that. Two of those people over the last three, four, five years have been Dr. Janine Hanger and Andrew Ferris, who are over here to what is my right, your left. They are profoundly gifted, <laughs> profoundly smart and brilliant uh, theologians and students of the scripture and have uh, just been a huge gift to Garrick and I and the churches that we've been a part of over these years in terms of bringing all of their gifts and their thoughts to the text in order to kind of inform the church and help it with it. Uh, and I've been thinking for a while now about how people like Andrew and Janine could actually come and help shape Coastline and who it is. And so what I've asked for them to do, and what Garrick and I have been discussing, is inviting them into a position that's called uh, Family Theologians, which is that they're going to have a formal position here at Coastline of speaking into the theological direction of where we're going and helping shape some of the culture of what we create here. Uh, both of them have taught at Biola. Uh, both of them have master's degrees. Janine also has a PhD on top of that. Incredibly gifted. And we want you to know that when they speak, uh, we uh, very much they come with both of our endorsement, but also there are people who are regularly speaking into our lives personally, and they're already shaping some of the things that you're hearing from us. And so we're thrilled tonight as we talk about how do we love God, honor God with our mind that we have two of the smartest people up here. So I've been waiting for this moment. I'm so excited. They absolutely killed the last service. You're going to be really blessed. Dr. Janine uh, Hanger and Andrew Ferris. <laughs> You can hear Sean struggling because by talking to her first, it's Dr. Janine Hanger and then regular Andrew, <laughs> which is fair. That, do you know how much work a PhD is? It's so much work, so you should call her doctor. Um, hi. Thanks, Sean. I'm really glad to be doing this and really glad to be with you um, getting into the Word together. So um, the, the, if you weren't here last week, we started a new series, and, um, and Sean uh, kicked it off with... Uh, uh, we're, we're talking about the greatest commandment, the famous passage in Matthew 22 where Jesus says, here's what the greatest commandment is. And Sean took us there uh, last week and focused on love God with all your heart. Um, and so this week, what I, apparently we've been like lovingly referred to as the nerds uh, in, the, in the church offices at Coastline. Um, and so the sort of typecast thing here was for the nerds to come do love God with all your mind. So um, that's what we're going to be into tonight. And if you uh, have your Bible... Um, there's uh, uh, turn it to Matthew chapter 22. In the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to use that, we'll be in the NIV. It's page 980. Uh, so you can turn there and let me read the passage for us. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, I am so grateful to be here tonight um, with the opportunity to teach your word. I pray that you'd give me and give Dr. Hanger words um, from you for our people tonight. pray that you would meet us here powerfully, that we would come to know you more, to be um, more satisfied in you, to enjoy you more, to know what it means that you love us right now in this moment, no matter what's going on. Amen. All right, so the context of this passage um, is this conversation, and it starts off on a question. Jesus is not entering into a space saying, gather around, children, let me teach you. He's being approached. He's being approached by the Pharisees who have a question for him, and it's what's the greatest commandment in the law? Now, um, <laughs> it almost seems out of nowhere in, in this passage for them to come do this, but, but actually it was a fairly common question at the time. There was all kinds of uh, engagement by rabbis and teachers around this idea of sort of what's the most important, what's the greatest thing, what do we need to keep most central? And, um, and Jesus goes to, uh, to answer a common question, he gives what is probably a fairly obvious answer, at least at first. He says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, uh, or all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. And, um, and it's a fairly obvious answer in part because when that passage is first taught in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, part of the thing that goes with that is write that passage everywhere. Put it everywhere in your life. And so the Pharisees, again, uh, Sean drew this out last week, if, um, if you weren't here, the, the Pharisees and other, and probably other observant Jews were um, writing that passage. They were tying it up, putting it on their wrists all over the place, um, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, as it's called, from the Hebrew word here, which is where it starts, hero Israel, uh, the Shema was everywhere. It was probably the John 3.16 of its time in some way, at least one of the ones. So it would be a really, really common answer. So in that respect, con contemporary to Jesus, his answer is obvious. But there is another reason why I think it is an obvious answer, and it's because of the place of that passage in Deuteronomy itself. And I actually want to take us there just for a moment. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, again, if you have the Pew Bible, it's page 178. Um, what I want you to see is that the context of Deuteronomy 6 is it puts this passage on a podium for us. Everything that precedes this passage in the book is, is pointing a finger to it and saying, pay close attention, look at this passage, look at what I'm about to tell you. Um, in fact, what I would love for some of you to do after this is to follow up by reading Deuteronomy 1 through 6 in as close to one sitting as possible. So just read it, try to get the big, broad sweep of what's going on. Don't get caught in the details. If something kind of sticks out, leave it behind. Keep going. Deuteronomy 1 through 6, read the whole thing in detail. And I hope you'll see basically what I am about to tell you, which is that Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 3 are all backwards looking. If you remember what's happening, Deuteronomy is, uh, uh, basically means second law, Deutero second, naos law from Greek, and the, uh, and the second law is called that because the first law has already been given at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, all of that, and now the people are well past that moment uh, because they have already gone off and they have um, committed idolatry and they've sinned and they've wandered in the wilderness, and now finally, finally, they're in Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the Promised Land. Acro just across the Jordan River from the Promised Land, 
And it's like they can see it. In fact, they probably can. They probably can look over and see the promised land. And here's this old promise that God gave so long ago to the people of Israel. And finally, they're right on the edge. And they're about to get access to the promised land. And so what Moses does, Moses is, is teaching in Deuteronomy. And he's teaching the people and reminding them of their history um, so that he can tell them how it's going to go when they get into the land. And so in Deuteronomy 1 through 3, he reminds them of the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 1. That's where the whole book of Deuteronomy starts. Don't forget, here's the promise that God gave to you. And then he goes through their refusal to go into the land, even when they get there. You might remember that whole story where they say, ah, those guys are really big, we're not going to do it. And so um, that, as an act of faithlessness and sin, leads them into wandering. And then Moses himself in chapter 3 goes back through how he's stuck. He doesn't even get to go into the promised land until so he re recounts all that history. He says, remember what has led up to this moment. And then in Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 5, he starts to turn a little bit towards how not to screw it up when you get there. Okay, here's how we got here. Now we're looking in, and now here's what you have to remember. In fact, in chapter 5, he recounts the entire Ten Commandments. Uh, basically the exact same passage as Exodus 20, uh, when, when the Ten Commandments are first given. And he, he recounts and tells them and goes over, hey, don't, uh, don't forget, these were the commandments that God gave to us on Mount Sinai. This is the really crucial thing. Keep these in mind. But he hasn't given them a single new or forward-looking command yet. Through all of those five chapters, it's all anticipation. So he puts it all there. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, listen to verses 1 through 3. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So do you hear the summary? He's saying, I'm going to tell you how, how it's going to work. I'm going to tell you, listen, this is what you need to know for it to go well with you at this next stage. So we don't repeat this history over and over and over again, which of course they do. But at the time, here's how it's going to go. And so it's like he's saying to them, lean in really close. Pay attention. And, and that's, I mean, when you read this in Deuteronomy 6, you should feel that. You should feel yourself going, oh, what's he going to say? What's he, I want to know. And this is what he says. Hear O oh, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Before he gets to anything about what kinds of cows you can eat which ways and how you can't eat pigs at all. Before he gets to anything about all of the details around everything related to life in Israel, he starts in one place. Love the Lord, really love Yahweh, the covenant God who you know by name. Love Yahweh your God with everything in you. It all comes down to this, Israel. Before we get to any of the details, it's this. Love him. Know him. Enjoy him. Be close to him, the person who delivered you from Egypt. He is one. He's the only one. Love him with everything. And in fact, this idea of with everything, um, it, you, it, the, it, you may have even noticed there that uh, in Deuteronomy it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
And in Matthew 22, Jesus says, love Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. In fact, in Luke, it's uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he gets them all in there. And I think what that tells you is that when you bring these passages from one language to another, that the categories are all kind of blurry. That sort of, they're all metaphors, and, we're, and where you draw the line, what's really the difference between, like, soul and strength, really? You know, and you can make, you can say some things. So we're doing that in this series, because what we want to do now is pick it apart a little and say, um, here's each part of what it means to love God holistically. But we're always trying to keep them both together, right? So the idea now is, let's love God with everything, and one part of that everything is your mind. So let's love God with our entire mind. So, let's start by asking the question, what is the mind? Okay. Hello. So, I'm going to talk about the mind, and, but I, I really want to kind of reemphasize what Andrew said, that this really is these, all of these components are linked, right? We are holistic beings, mind, body, like, we, like heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's all interconnected. They always are dialoguing with each other. We saw this most clearly this last week, if you've been watching the Olympics, and Simone Biles, right? If, you, if you've been following this, the most decorated gymnast pulls out of the competition because of a mental block, right? She, she knew that mentally she was not prepared to, for her body to do what it needed to do, right? There's an interconnection right there. So we are, we are all interconnected. And so we're parsing these out for sake of focus, um, but it's ultimately about loving God with everything that we've got. So turning to the mind, what is the mind? And you might immediately, when I say that, think like intellect. And I think that's part of it. I think that's right. Um, but intellect, maybe that sounds a little bit um, intimidating or difficult or even boring. Like that means I'm gonna have to read a book and it's summertime, or I'm gonna have to study really hard, or. I'm gonna have to be really smart, and I, you know, like, whatever that might um, do for you, like, I, I don't wanna, like, turn you away from it, but, but what we're looking at with the mind, I, I think, if I could give us a couple basic ideas about the mind, I think J.P. Moreland, he's a philosopher, puts it really helpfully. Um, he says, the mind is the soul's primary vehicle for making contact with God. I'll say it again. The mind is the soul's primary vehicle for making contact with God. And so as such, the mind really plays a critical role in our spiritual transformation. Um, another way of putting it is that the mind is the thinking portion of the heart. So when we engage our minds, God can work to shift and transform our hearts, our character, our affections to align more with him. And this forms the basis for the idea that intellectual development can impact our spiritual growth. The more we know, the more insight we have. When we get more insight, it can change how we think, how we live, how we relate to other people, how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves even. So let me give you an example of how insight, new information might change how we live. Um, first example, eggs. If anyone was around in the 1980s, if you're too young to remember, I'm gonna tell you, eggs had a bad reputation. I don't know if you remember this, like eggs were like thought to contribute to bad cholesterol and bad cholesterol was not good for your heart and so eggs were not, they kind of had a bad reputation for a while. But then new science came in, we got new insight about eggs and we learned that actually there's a good kind of cholesterol and there's a good kind of fat and eggs are actually really good for you so we should all eat eggs, right? It changes how we relate to something like eggs. Um, when we get new information, this can change our beliefs and then this can also change our habits, right? 
Say you went to the dentist this summer, and the dentist told you, you he, he's trying to convince you that your teeth need you to cut back on the candy you like to eat, right? Um, the cavities are the new information introduced into the situation. But you love candy, and candy is important to your life of joy, and so if this new information about your teeth is going to change your belief and your habits about candy, your mind needs to go to work to help you with this habit, right? Um, you might need to ask yourself, what joy is being met by this eating my candy, right? And, and am I willing to switch that out for something else? Your mind is involved in transforming uh, your, your connection to something like that. Um, if we turn to apply this to how we engage God, if our mind is convinced that God is like an angry father, for example, we're going to relate to God in that way. And so we might actually avoid him because he's kind of scary. But if we think of God as loving, like he loves me, and actually he might even like me, doesn't that change how, how you relate to God? It changes how you approach him. You might actually bring him into your life more often, and you want to know what he thinks, and you want to tell him what you think, and, and you're just going to connect with him more. So to the degree that loving God with our minds pertains to intellectual engagement, I think this makes a good case for studying scripture. The more we know about the Bible, the more we learn about God, the more we see, the more we understand to be transformed. And in fact, Paul talks about it in Romans 12. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is our act of worship. So this all sounds good in theory, but I think um, I don't know about you, have you ever encountered people in your life who are so focused on activities of the mind that they kind of lose the love part? Uh, maybe this is like the Bible answer guy, right? The loveless Bible answer guy, um, as Andrew puts it. Um, the person who knows a lot about the Bible front and back, but when you talk about loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's like they develop the mind only. Um, I'll give you a little picture of this. The four corners of this elastic um, represent heart, soul, mind, and strength, okay? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we develop our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it expands our capacity to love God, right? But what happens if you focus only on one part, like the mind? You may think that you're expanding your love for God, but actually you're thinning it out because the mind is going off over here, and eventually it's going to get disconnected from love, get disconnected even from the community, right? So I think that will lead us into the next part. Yeah, the loveless Bible guy, you could also call, call uh, one of my friends calls him the Bible bully. Another one is the well actually guy, you know, like the well actually, it means that kind of thing. And it turns out the well actually guy, the loveless Bible guy is not a new phenomenon. Um, it's, it's been around forever. And in fact, it's the exact context that Jesus is speaking into here that one of the things that you could miss about this Matthew 22 passage, especially if it's familiar to you, is that while it has become famous in its own, in its initial context, it is not Jesus um, sitting as the religious sage around a group of followers who are devoted to him saying, tell us, Lord, how do we walk with you? It's a fight. It's in the midst of a back and forth uh, with a bunch of people who are aggressive with him in some ways. So, um, so if you look back at the passage, look at verse 34, Matthew 22, 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So, okay, so it's in the midst of some conversations. The Pharisees have heard something about what he did, and they're saying, like, okay, let's take a crack at him. Um, and then verse 35, it, one of them, an expert in the law, probably their well-actually guy, 
an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So it's not a good faith question at all, actually. They're coming at him not because they want his opinion, but because they want to put him down. They want to well actually Jesus. They want to get him. And, uh, and in the midst of that, as it turns out, this also is in the midst of a bunch of chapters of Jesus going back and forth doing the same kind of thing, um, bringing judgment and uh, condemnation to a religious system that is all about uh, uh, loveless Bible knowledge in a lot of ways. It's probably a little too simple of a summary, but in a lot of ways, that's what it's about. So if you were to read back, and again, like I told you to do with Deuteronomy 1 through 6, I would do the same thing sometime with Matthew 21 through 23. Um, just read them all in as close to one sitting as possible. Don't get caught in the details. Just keep reading the whole broad sweep and see what Jesus is doing here. He rides into town in the triumphal entry, and the, the crowd say, Hosanna to the son of David. Um, but immediately, the first thing the Messiah does is goes to the temple in Matthew and brings judgment on it and says, you've turned this into a den of robbers. And so he comes after them. It's aggressive. I mean, he's flipping tables over. It's, it's, it's really aggressive. Uh, and then he curses the fig tree, which is a weird story in a lot of ways. It feels weird. It's, he, he comes over and does this like weird fruit tree magic where he, he makes a tree wither. And it's like, what is going on? But the reason he does that uh, is as a symbol of this is, there's supposed to be fruit and there's no fruit and I'm bringing judgment on this place where there's no fruit. Uh, on the people where there's no fruit. And then he goes into some parables and teachings and uh, three parables in a row all about how the people have denied um, everything that God has kept trying to do for them over and over and over for a long time. And then in chapter 22, it's a long set of arguments. It's, it's uh, Sadducees and Pharisees coming after him and saying, what about, what about, what about, and trying to get him and lock him down till eventually at the end of this passage, um, this is the last of them actually, where, where Jesus is being approached and then he turns the tables to them and says, okay, let me ask you a question and they can't answer it. And so then it goes from there into Matthew chapter 23, which I think maybe even as much as the turning of the tables is Jesus at his most vicious. I mean, he is ruthless with the Pharisees in this passage. He calls them hypocrites and a brood of vipers and says woe to them seven different times. And he hammers them for over and over and over again doing this thing, which is being loveless despite their depth of knowledge and even their detailed obedience. This is where Jesus says, you tithe down to your mint and your cumin. You tithe off of your spices, Jesus says but you neglect the weightier things of the law. And that's a huge miss. And you're like whitewashed tombs. And he comes after them in all of these ways over and over to make this one point, which is, which is Jesus, not the religious sage teaching a group of devoted followers, but Jesus, the Messiah, clarifying with absolute authority in the face of opposition what true religion true righteousness, and true kingdom life is. And what does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. Love your neighbor as yourself is a much less obvious Old Testament passage to go to and answer this question than uh, love God with everything. But apparently Jesus was all over this point because in Luke, when Luke tells the story, it's actually the, this same conversation is the kickoff to the Good Samaritan passage. So he goes pretty quickly over love God with everything and then goes into this, this parable and this memorable story about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is telling us is that you're probably not doing one if you're not doing the other. You've got to be doing both, and you've got to keep those the center of everything. Um, the goal of every single element of your life, including 
every last thought, every piece of the life of the mind, the goal of all of it is to love God and to love your neighbor. It's love. The Pharisees were law-keeping theological masters to whom Jesus has five chapters of negative things to say here, which means we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And everything that we are doing, there's one purpose. It's to know him, to love him, and to love our neighbor as ourselves as part of what it means to do that. This is the greatest commandment. And just like Moses is asking the people in Deuteronomy to lean in and to say, wait, what are you going to say right now? When we hear the Lord Jesus, our king, say, this is the greatest and most important thing, I hope we do the same thing. We, we, wait a minute. Jesus Christ is telling us the, he, what he's saying is the most important commandment, the greatest thing. So what do we do? We lean in and we hear him say, love God with everything. Love him with your whole self. It's all-encompassing. It's sweeping, and it covers all of life. So, kind of coming off of that, I want to talk about how does the mind fit into that? How, the mind is connected to everything we do, right? Um, I don't think there's a division between the sacred and the secular. In other words, loving God with our mind doesn't mean that we love God with our minds only when we read the Bible. It doesn't mean that we all need to go out and get a theological degree. Um, I, I think it, it reminds me of the bike wheel illustration that Sean used a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you caught that, but it was really helpful when he was talking about worship. And he talked about a bike wheel, and he was saying that we, we will, um, the different components of our lives, right, um, represent the spokes. And we will sometimes put worship as just one of those spokes. When he says, no, actually, God is at the center of our lives, and, and every single spoke is an opportunity to worship God in every part of our lives. And I think that we can act, uh, apply that to the activities of the mind. Every activity of our mind that we engage in is an opportunity to glorify and love God with our minds. We don't need to spend 12 hours a day studying Scripture in order for it to count. Um, I don't think, I think we must never fall into the trap of thinking that studying the Bible checks the box for the day of, oh, I loved God with my mind today, right? Um, I think this is important for those of us who might be tempted to discount our everyday lives as an opportunity to love God. We can love God with our minds when we dig into scripture, and we're going to talk about that. Um, but we take that awareness of biblical truth and, the, and in its context, and it can be infused into every part of our life. So we can love God with our minds when we work out a math problem in calculus class, uh, when we use our minds to reason uh, through a managerial dilemma at work, uh, when we try to figure out how to relate to uh, someone in a disagreement. All of these are opportunities to love God with our minds. These opportunities come all day, every day, whether we're thinking explicitly about the Word of God or not. And so our response to God's love to Him um, is every facet of our lives. And so this, this again brings in this idea of loving our neighbor, right? Um, how we love God impacts how we love others. And I think the reverse is true, too. I don't know if you've thought about this. How we love others impacts how we love God. And Jesus actually punctuates this in Matthew 5. In verses 23 and 24, he says this. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It hit me, um, someone pointed it out to me, and it hit me really hard when I first thought about it, that making things right with someone that we've wronged is important enough to interrupt worshiping God. That's how important it is to love others. And so loving God is in part expressed by how we love our neighbor, and loving our neighbor in part is how we love God. And so every life situation with differing measures of intellectual rigor are opportunities to love God and to love neighbor. Um, and we use our minds as part of that. Now, this doesn't discount the importance of engaging the Word of God. This is still incredibly important. Psalm 1 talks about um, meditating on the Word day and night. And so this is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of meditating on the Word of God. We are holistically called to love God with our minds. Um, and now within that, let's address how our minds are shaped by our connection to Scripture. And drawing a connection back to Scripture here makes sense in the context of Deuteronomy 6, because um, you can hear this back and forth, which is the very next thing that happens in Deuteronomy 6 is that uh, Moses tells the people, write the law, write these words all over your doorposts and everywhere you look. So the moment he tells them, love God with everything, he immediately tells them, write that word down and be surrounded and see it and talk about it all the time. So here's the word, now know the word experience the word and all you do. And the thing that's interesting about that is he's not saying that to just a bunch of rabbis. He's saying that to people who are going to go farm their fields, right? Just as Janine was just saying, the, uh, the, these, the, the call to love our God with our minds, on the one hand, is part of all of life, and on the other hand, at the same, or probably the same hand is probably a better way to say it, um, is directly connected to how our minds are filled with scripture and with God's word. And, um, <clears throat> And I think it's worth pausing and asking, why is this so important? And even why do we prioritize the Bible <clears throat> so much in Christian faith? I, I don't know if you've, like, stopped and noticed that. <laughs> but we talk a lot about the Bible. We talk about it all the time. And we have Bible studies, and we spend a lot of time in our services talking about the Bible. We, we have Bible everywhere, and there's a reason for that. <clears throat> and it's, it's this. Have you thought really about what the Bible is Maybe the tempting answer is to say the Word of God, and that's helpful. That's a good summary of what's going on. But like to think, what do we mean by that? What, what actually at its core is this book? It's not just religious teaching. It's not just encouragement and inspiration. It's not just wisdom. It's not just tradition, though it is all of those things, right? It's not just those things. At the end of the day, and, and I want to pause here, and tell you, this is the thing I really care that you hear tonight from me. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, the reason we care so much about the Bible is because the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. The Bible is God coming to us and saying, know me. Meet me. That's why we call it the word of God. It's a word from God. It's a word about God at the same time. It is him coming to us. And in that respect, the, the gift, the Bible is a gift of profound grace to us. Have you ever thought about that? That at some point God thought up the idea that he would give us a book. And that through that book, we would know him and enjoy him. And that every time we open it, we don't just read verses on a page. We meet and see him. And, 
and we go and commune with him. And so when we hear the word spoken, it's, it's not just a word on a page, and it's not just religious. It's God coming to us and meeting us and displaying himself to us. And what a good and beautiful and wonderful invitation that is from him to know us. It's all about him making himself known to you, a person. And if you want to know and enjoy and love God with all you are, the invitation for you is to step into his word and to meet him there because he's given that to you as your way of knowing him. Now, you could, of course, overstate that right? In a way where it's, I'm not saying that prayer doesn't count for knowing God as well. What I'm saying is, fundamentally, God has revealed himself to us in this way. And that's why I honestly, as like family theologian or whatever, I don't care if you know theology. Not really, per se. I don't care that we like practice good Bible exposition at this church. Not really. Not for its own sake. I care about those things for one reason. Because I want us to gather and meet with the Lord. I want us to know him as he actually is. I want to enjoy him as he actually is. And I want to love him with all of me. Not as a thing to do or a duty, but because I want to know and enjoy God. And because at the center of this book, there's actually one word that God speaks above everything else. And it's the word Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a story about God making himself known to us in his son. And so talk about a book of grace. It is profoundly about what it means that he is there, knowable for us, that he loves us and cares about us. And um, and no matter what is going on in our lives, whatever darkness we're experiencing, that he is there and he's experienced death and resurrection and invited us into that. And so when Jesus tells us the parable of the treasure hidden in a field that's worth selling everything for, ultimately he's the treasure. He's the treasure in the field, and he is worth selling everything for. And if we want to know him and enjoy him the way that he is, there's a simple uh, invitation for us. is to step into his word, to meet him, to know him, behold him, and love him with absolutely everything that we are. That's why we prioritize the Bible so much, because we want him. We prioritize the Bible because we prioritize God in Christ through the Spirit. Yeah, hey, that's fine. That clap's good. Yeah. All right, Dr. Hanger, you've experienced this powerfully and personally. Tell people about it. I almost regretted, telling, I almost regretted agreeing to say this, but I'm, I'm, I'll do it again. So <laughs> thank you for um, encouraging me, Andrew. Um, yeah, coming off of what Andrew is saying, uh, um, many years ago I had this experience of walking through a spiritual desert. And maybe you've had this experience too. Um, if you haven't, you probably will at some point. But let me clarify a spiritual desert. A spiritual desert is like a, a physical desert, um, but not like the vacation-y Palm Springs kind of desert with air conditioning and a swimming pool. That's not the kind of desert I'm talking about. I'm talking about the desolate, dry, nobody around, it's hot and sandy, and there's just, it's just desolate. That kind of a physical desert, uh, spiritually understood, right? Where, where it's really hard to find God. It seems like he's completely absent. Sometimes we call this the dark night of the soul, where darkness becomes the metaphor for how we are perceiving God, in that we can't seem to see him anywhere. It's not that he's gone, it's just we don't perceive where he is, and it can be a very disorienting experience. 
Um, the reason why we might be led into a spiritual desert is, is sometimes God leads us there, and, and we, we might not go there on our own, but he leads us there because he, he wants to continue our transformation deeper in our hearts. And as the sense of God's presence disappears, it invites us to trust. Do I trust that he's there even though I can't perceive him? And so during, for me, during this time, I, my heart could not find God. I could understand words, I could understand the word in my mind, uh, but it would not connect with my heart. And it led me to question the kinds of things that I wasn't able to experience. So was God real? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't feel it. Um, is he here? It, it sure seems like he's not. Does he love me? I don't, I don't really feel that either. So I don't know if you've had an experience like that, but, and maybe it wasn't a spiritual desert, but even if you've had like a very low emotional moment or season, um, or a time when you felt isolated or lonely, or a time where you've been so anxious you just couldn't settle your heart down, or maybe you've questioned or you're questioning if God loves you, or your faith is just really low, or God just feels completely absent, and I think we're confronted with the question, what can we do? What can we do in those times? For me, this season was happening when I was first in seminary. So every day I was going through all these intellectual exercises. I was writing theology papers, I was learning Greek, I was being assigned to read the Bible, and normally these exercises would give me so much joy, but at the time, my heart was so disconnected from God, I'll be honest, it just felt really dry. And um, it felt just like discipline. But Looking back on that time, it was this discipline of engaging in activities of the mind that kept me tethered to God. In other words, engaging my mind helped me to engage with God when my heart could not. Um, at the time, it didn't, it didn't feel like I was engaging God. I was, but it didn't feel like it. It still felt like I was going through the motions. Um, but through the mind reaching out, this actually helped create or maintain pathways in the heart that could later bear fruit. And why did it bear fruit? Because every time we open the word, as we talked about, we have this opportunity to meet and encounter the living God. So engaging the mind in the word is a way to engage with God no matter how you're feeling on a given day. Um, and I think no matter what, we can trust that he's going to work in and through that activity. So what do I mean by engaging the word? Um, it could be as simple as reading a passage of scripture. It could be memorizing it. It could be taking just a truth and reflecting on it. Um, you could remind yourself of some truth. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. It's talking to your heart to instill in it the thoughts of God. That's meditating on scripture. That's meditating on God's word. Talking to your heart to instill in it the thoughts of God. And it's not that these activities will save us in these moments, but it's something we can do when we're most at a loss. This is a legitimate way to turn to God when all other avenues feel closed off. And why this is so can be found in passages like Isaiah 55, which is going to show up on the screens, I think, um, starting in verse 10. I just love this passage. God is speaking. He says, As the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth, God says. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So engaging the word of God is never without purpose. It sows a seed into our relationship with God. Now what this might feel like I'm saying is that you should just read the Bible and it's going to solve all your problems. Or like I'm trying to just slap a Bible verse on it. Um, 
what I'm saying is a lot deeper than that. What I'm saying is you ever find yourself in a place where you cannot generate a single ounce of faith, hope, love, part of how you stay tethered to him is to engage your mind and reach out to God through his word. And in that moment, it may not feel warm and fuzzy. It may feel really matter-of-fact. It may feel cold and intellectual. It may feel more like a doctor's office than a rock concert. But it's not empty. So for me, um, I reached a point in this desert season when I, I just decided to hang on for dear life to the truth that God loved me. Even though I didn't feel it, I believed that he wanted me to know this truth in my mind and my heart. And I, I appreciated what Sean talked about last week in terms of how God speaks in these terms that involve emotion. Have you ever thought about the fact that God commands emotion? Do not fear. Rejoice. Right? I don't, I don't think that it's meant to just be an intellectual exercise. I, when you align the head and the heart, I believe that that's, that is the perfect expression of do not fear or rejoice. Right? And so when we think about these truths, um, the head and the heart are designed to line up in perfect expression. So when we hear the word say God loves us, uh, we may not always get perfect alignment, but I think it's God's will for us to get there. And so I hung on to that truth, um, spent a long time in that doctor's office, and over time I think it eventually infiltrated other parts of my being so that I knew it. I really knew it. Um, so I really, I really think it just doesn't matter where we're at with God or with ourselves. I think we all have an opportunity to hear from him and to love him with our minds. This past week I was reading in Hebrews chapter 3, and this, this writer recalls the period um, that, that Andrew was talking about, actually, that this period during Moses and Joshua, um, and he was addressing, the writer of Hebrews was addressing Israel's lack of faith. And Israel had been wandering in the desert for 40 years because here was a nation that did not trust God. And in the middle of this passage in Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, you can go check it out, um, he repeats a line from Psalm 95. And I thought it was really cool the first time I saw it. But then as I kept reading, I noticed he repeats the same line from Psalm 95 three times throughout these two chapters. And so, I, I don't know, it just, the, the line grabbed me. And so I, I think it's just, I'm going to repeat it a couple times because I think it's a really good one for us tonight. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. How can we hear his voice on any day of the week? We can engage with God through his word. Hebrews 4.12 goes on to say, The word of God is alive and active. God is living and active. His word is for us today an opportunity to hear from him. He's speaking all the time. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he's with us. He rejoices us with us on our best days. He leads us out of the desert. He picks us up when we fall. And sometimes he lays down on the ground with us when we can't get up. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He loves you. He loves us. He loves to speak with us. He invites us to love him with all that we've got. And our minds are a powerful, important way that we can engage with him. So we want to invite you to meet God tonight in the reality of where you're at, no matter where you're at, um, through his word where he makes himself known to us. Yeah, so we wanted something really simple, which is um, to take a moment and to, to hear from the Lord. Just to do that together as a community, to hear from the Lord. And we can do that um, by hearing from his word. And so I'm going to read a passage that has been important to me. I'm going to give you no comment, uh, which is hard for me, about why it's been important. 
Um, but I'm going to give you no comment about it because what I want you to hear is I just want you to hear from the Lord in his word. And um, as the passage that Janine just cited said, to not harden your hearts. And then we're going to practice doing that together. So after I read this, um, I'd like some of you, whoever, to just read any passage that's been important to you. Uh, adult, children, anybody. And to just, um, to just read it out loud, for, or to quote it if you know it, um, just for other people to hear. Um, and I'd like you, as much as possible, as you, as you read, as you quote it, to be present with the fact that the Lord has spoken this to you so that you can know him and enjoy him. Um, so to be present with that. So, uh, and then uh, we won't do raised hands or anything. I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll direct traffic if multiple people talk at once. But otherwise, just kind of go, and we'll do that, and then I'll tell you when we stop. So um, here's 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you.